This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Uh, His name is Ahmed, and I'm sorry, Ahmed, I'm not going to say your last name because I'm just going to butcher it. I should have gotten better pronunciation (laughs) before we actually switched over to this. Um, So we're going to talk to him via... Um, about because he Ahmed is from Iraq, and so the last few weeks we have been speaking to veterans, and consistently with all the veteran stories that have joined the Libertarian Party, using um, experiences in having seen I been to Iraq and in combat um, as a reason of rejecting like the military industrial complex and like having this mistrust with the American government and all of that kind of thing. So, um, but first I just want to make a quick announcement that there will be um, a libertarian party presence at grand old days. Uh, Sorry, I should have this up. Anyways, grand old days down in CD four, I think. So this on June 4th from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. So there will be more information on the website. Yep, St. Paul. Thank you. Um, So anyways, without further ado, here is Ahmed. Hello, Ahmed. Hi, how are you, Troy? Good, welcome. uh, Can you tell me, how do you pronounce your last name? My last name is, um, well, my first name, Ahmed Al-Rawazik. Okay. You know, I should have asked that in advance. I'm sorry I didn't. But, <laughs> sorry. but you know, anyways. Um, so I wanted to talk to you um, because you were born in Iraq. Yes. Um, where in Iraq? I sh- suppose I should ask that also. Well, I was actually born in Nejef. My mother is from Karbeta. My dad is from Nejef. Okay. And what part of, um, what part, northeast, south, like province or? To be 100% honest with you, I'm not 100% sure, but we were at least least 10 minutes away from like El Sadr's house is from what I heard. So Okay. Okay. Um, So, and your family came to the United States at what point in your life? We came to the United States back in June 1994. My father and my uncle were part of the militias that actually were able to seize multiple cities during the Intifada against Saddam Hussein. So we were able to receive political refugee visas to come to the United States. Okay. I didn't, I'm going to learn a lot about you this evening during our interview because I'm not sure you've ever like sat down and had a, you know, I mean, I I think I, we've talked a lot, but um, there's, I, anyways, I've always had a lot of questions, so I'm, I'm kind of excited about this interview. If, if anyways, I could ask a, a quick one here, um, it's so, um, did, when you, your family came to the United States, did you guys end up immediately in Minnesota or did you end up somewhere else and move to Minnesota? No, we actually came through New York to get processing first. Uh, my social security starts with like two zeros. I'm not going to tell you the rest, obviously, but usually when you get processed through New York, it starts with two zeros, but we actually settled in Vermont at first. Ah. How long the process for getting to the United States for, for, for your family, how arduous was that for you guys? I remember we were in a refugee camp in Saudi Arabia. It was called Rafha. And in Rafha, they basically, there's a bulletin post and they would like post your names to see how far up you were going on the list. And it was basically like a lottery process, which is what I believe is the process at that time. And you waited to get selected. I think we were in Rafha for about two years. Okay. 
so a significant amount of time. Yeah, what, but it um, wasn't too bad. Yeah, what was like? What do you remember about the refugee camp? I'm I'm doing the math quickly in my head. So you were pretty young when you were there, but what do you remember about it? You know, we were in Saudi Arabia, so it wasn't too bad actually. Um, the government officials would come there and you know make sure a lot of people were good. We had ambulance services, uh, proper plumbing, and things like that. Um, things were good. My dad actually owned a business too. Um, in the refugee camp. Well, not in the actual camp, but like in the oh. actual town. But, oh, yeah. okay. Oh, okay. So um, I'm not. Yeah. That. Well, that's cool. So yeah. kind of like I mean, you know, a life in limbo, but still not doing nothing, you know? Exactly. Yeah. We were safe. We were comfortable. In fact, I mean, generally speaking as a kid, it's not as bad as most people thought as a refugee camp was. I mean, I'm a, I was a kid as a, at the time. Yeah. I probably didn't realize how bad it was. So well, when you're a kid, everything's exciting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you guys ended up in Vermont and then what brought your family to Minnesota? Mm -hmm. My father was a truck driver, actually, and he would travel a lot between Michigan and Washington. So we actually stayed in Washington and Michigan, bounced around quite a bit. Eventually, they just settled in Minnesota because I guess it was a lot nicer than Michigan and close enough to Washington. <laughs> okay. Well, with our winters here, I'm always curious as to how people end up here and more, I guess, the question yeah. of why why some of them stay. <laughs> you know what? And I was listening to Rebecca's podcast the other day. She says that most of the people that settle in Minnesota is because they have a spouse. And that is 100% fact because the only reason I came back to Minnesota is because of my ex-wife. <laughs> yeah. Almost cool. everybody I've talked to that is, you know, that isn't from minnesota originally you know they have the story it, it always it always involves a spouse 100%. So, <laughs> yeah um so do you have siblings i do i have five six maybe sisters um are you the only son i was for a long time my mother got remarried and eventually had a son okay yeah but i am the firstborn and the oldest of the family oh, okay. so that's a lot of sisters that's yeah. You know, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I have a few kids that are like, I have my, my first five kids out of, you know, the five, I had one son and I was, I was like, you know, he's at the older end. And anyways, life is a little different for him being surrounded completely by sisters, but. Oh yeah. You're you know. definitely uh, judged harshly as the first. <laughs> yeah. Have a, a different um, way of growing up too, I think. Yeah. Um, so you were, you settled in Minnesota and, oh, I wanted to ask when you guys ended up leaving Iraq, what was like the, you know, the thing that made you decide now is the time to go? Do you? I remember my father telling me a story about it and it basically happened at uh, four or five in the morning is what he was telling me. And there were a bombing raid and they got into his truck, and as soon as they were flying through and trying to cross the borders, the truck was riddled with bullets, riddled. And uh, I think, I don't know what it was, but something must have hit my sister, and it made her deathly sick for, like, weeks. She, I, We didn't know she was going to survive, actually. And uh, eventually she did pull through, but they must have been using some sort of toxic type of ammunition on the refugees or something. Because they really wanted to kill us. What year was that? Uh, this was 93, 94. Well, we came in, okay, probably in the 
hell, it could have probably been 92, 91, because we came to America in 94, and we were in, in Rafa for about two years. So, yeah, 91, 92, early 90s, we were being attacked by chemical weapons, yes. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, what is, no, I know, there. you know, the different types of, um, you know, um, I, I guess I'm not sure what to call it, cultures, people, you know, Iraq is made up of a variety. There's the Kurds, um, the, you know, the Ba'ath Party, all, all those different, you know, groups in Iraq. So where did your family, how did they fit in and where did you guys originate? We... My grandfather was an armsman, so he built and designed firearms since before the since pretty much the Ottoman Empire collapsed and things like that. And so we have always been in Najaf for generations and generations. So, and what as the governments changed, the culture tried to stay the same, but the governments pushed towards different policies. And then you have governments like Iran who, who push more towards like hardline Sharia Islam, whereas you have Iraq that try to stay more secular. Mm -hmm. Our family basically is right there in the middle. We are Shia, like Iran is, and the rest of South Iraq, but we are quite open secularly because we're in Najaf. And a lot of trade and business and things like that and cultural inspiration happened through Najaf to the outskirts of Baghdad. I guess to say we were more business-minded than closed open. And it made, it made Najaf prosper, it made the family prosper, and it made life better, I guess to say. So where my family sat in was i guess you could see like a predominant city family okay yeah um and then for the first gulf war um your family and uh, what how did that affect you guys well the first gulf war after the when the gulf, first gulf war happened and the iraqi army was retreating i remember my dad and uncle saying that they were coming back from across the border of kuwait from looting it and stuff because everybody was going over there it was just fun so they came back with a bunch of cars and jewelry and things like that and selling it on the streets and but once the americans came in things started getting a little sketchy but during the first gulf war the main thing that a lot of the militias were thinking was trying to set up, uh, I guess you could say like internal borders. You're not going to recognize them as international borders, but internal borders were to make sure that the Saddam's army and the Ba'ath party weren't able to actually go through different parts. Okay. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of hospitals and including my birth certificate in Karba that was destroyed and things like that but other hospitals were saved because of different strategic methods. And a lot of holy sites that are important to Shia Islam that the Sunnis might not like were still saved. Okay. So that, and, I mean... And a quick question, um, and if, if I can ask here, I know, Rebecca, you did the math in your head on this, but just to help paint a picture for the audience and myself, like age-wise, how old were you when you were in Iraq at this time? During the Gulf War? Yeah. I was between five and seven. Five and okay. seven, okay. So enough to have like a, maybe a vague memory, but it's not, I mean, do you have a lot of clear memories of that time period now? I remember a lot of the refugee camp 
And I do remember a little bit of the Iraq campaigns, but I remember most of the refugee camp. In Iraq, I don't remember too much because I remember seeing a fighter jet blow out a power plant. My, mo my mother told me she almost dropped me accidentally from on top of the home's balcony, but I guess I blew out my eardrum. And yeah. Mm. I know um, memories for children really start um, um, being possible around the age of six. Yeah. But sometimes, uh, you know, like traumatic things that you've gone through are a little different. So you can have earlier memories um, from, you know, big events, those kinds of things that maybe would, you know, have triggered having that possibility of that memory younger than six. Yeah. But so it's right at that time period where you would really start um, developing the memory. Anyways, that's just a side note. But you know what? that does make a lot of sense because there's only a couple memories I have from that time. And it was that time. And there was another memory. And it was the time I looked at my dad when I had his watch. And he said, you better not throw my watch in the drain. I looked at him. I threw it into the drain. So, yeah, <laughs> that was oh, I bet that made him happy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a son. Yeah, I understand. That's um, anyways. So you came to Iraq or you were from Iraq. You came to the United States and you said, I'm sorry, you said you got here about 93, 94, June 94. of 1994. 94. Okay. Um, and then, so then the whole, you know, process of American school and starting to get, you know, into becoming American, which is kind of, you know, America is, historically a melting pot so accepting people from all around the world you know you, you just culturally we have a mix um of everybody and at least that's how you know america was founded or or meant to be um so what was your experience like in school like how did you because you know obviously iraqis don't speak english um and you would have started with um you know a dialect of um arab right Yes. So how did that, how long did it take you to get accustomed to like just daily life here? You know, thankfully I came to this country when I was young. So I was able to pick up on the language and I made friends with a lot of people before I was able to go to school, like just with the neighbor kids and stuff like that. So I was able to learn a couple little things here and there. Um, thankfully I, before things happened, I try to see myself as a perfectionist. So one of the things that I learned is how to perfect my language. And I was able to break off the accent completely after like a couple of years, but it only took me about a year to actually fully learn English. Like I was fluent in a year. So no, oh, nice. Hmm. Um, so how did your parents do? Not too well, probably, <laughs> you know what, but I think they just didn't even really try. You know, some people want to try. I don't think that I ever saw them try like they kind of just got by if it's like eh, if we have to learn it we'll learn it but if we don't need to why should we type deal me yeah. i wanted to learn it because i wanted to engulf myself in the culture like i need to know how to speak to people i want to learn how to talk to them so yeah so do they still live in the united states no my mother actually lives with her husband in dubai and i believe my father lives in germany so okay oh we have a thunderstorm so Sorry if there's a little oh, noise. I can hear that. Yeah. And, and you still <laughs> that, have family. That, in, I, I, okay. I was going to say you still have family in Iraq as, as well. 
I'm I do, yes. I have quite a bit of uncles, aunts. I also have a bunch of cousins. I actually speak to my one of my cousins who's actually in the Iraqi Special Forces almost regularly. He hunts ISIS cells, sends me pictures of all sorts of weapons that they find. Like They have stuff that they have in Ukraine right now. It's weird. Stuff from Ukraine is getting smuggled into ISIS cells in Iraq right now. Hmm. It's funny how that's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 9-11 happens and you're still in school. Yes. What immediately following 9-11, how was that? I mean, obviously you don't, you look Arab, right? So yes. there is a, you know, and I remember that there was just this kind of backlash and I'm from the South, so we didn't have a lot of you know, Arab looking people, I guess, you know, in the South. Um, but because that tends to be more um, North. Um, but this is so what was your experience with 9-11 and how were you treated immediately and your family? Like, what was your overall experience? After God, that? it was fucking terrible. I remember being in middle school. I went to Westwood Middle School, actually. And there was a principal. His name was Principal Norton. I will call his ass out for this because it was bullshit. He would literally call the cops on me multiple times because students will say, oh, I feel like he has an RPG in his locker. I took the school bus, like the shit like that. And it <laughs> pisses me off. hide an RPG in your backpack. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it pisses me off now because it's like, I can't believe I let them get away on me. I let them get over on me, basically treating me like this when I could have fucked their entire lives up, treating me like this legally. And I, I, there wasn't a day that I wasn't suspended where a bunch of kids wouldn't try to pick on me and I defend myself. Nothing would happen to them, but I'd get suspended because of principle. It like the administration made it seem like it was okay to fuck with me after 9-11. That's how it was the entire time. If I made it through a school, a, a week of school without being suspended, it was a fucking miracle. And it still angers me to this day because I let them get away with that. Yeah. Well, so were there a lot of other people of Arab descent in your school or were you just, you know, I was pretty person? much like the only one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to hide in a crowd when you're, especially, I mean, I just remember after 9-11, the mentality overall was just, there was this, I don't know, it wasn't, but, you know, living through it when it is directly affecting you is, you know, a lot different so well and i think some of that comes from our, our government i think our government really painted with a broad brush that people from the middle east all that's when like everybody could be considered a terrorist and that, that was i think a lot of our government propaganda right it was um yeah so 9 11 happened we go to afghanistan the United States does pretty much immediately. But then less than two years later, we're also in Iraq. Kind of walk me through that process of like what your family was going through. By that time, were your parents back or when, or your mom or like, had they left the United States? You said your no, mom. No, actually my parents were actually in the United States till about 2000. 10, 11. So they've been here for a while. They just left like a decade ago. But after September 11th, we were still here. After Afghanistan, we actually had federal agents outside of our houses, literally going through our trash. Uh, after the Iraq war, they actually would go to my dad's business and offer him jobs. It was kind of weird. Hmm. 
So I'm not even sure what I'm going to have to think about that one before I <laughs> say anything. Um, Cause well, you know, the, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if you want to think about that for a moment, um, one of the questions that I had on um, it is in, in regards to that, that time that you were just talking about when you were getting the administration was not treating you fairly. Was that kind of high school time frame, or is that? No, high? that was, that was middle school actually. High school, school. Think, yeah, that was middle school. And high school thankfully wasn't as bad. Um, I had good teachers in high school and a good administration. I went to Spring Lake Park high school. So. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then after high school, I guess, just kind of fast forwarding to today with, with, would you say things have changed a lot in that sense? You know, it really depends on where you are, but I think it, you know, in Michigan, there's a lot of Arabs. So a lot, uh, there's also a lot of clan members and neo-Nazis there. So their um, hatred towards is a lot of the Jews that are in Michigan and towards the Arabs. But if you're in Minnesota, a lot of the hatred is towards like the Somalians. They don't really pay attention to the Arabs. It's regional, I guess to say. But I think as an Arab American, things have kind of dissipated, helped lately ever since Trump came in and said the Iraq war was bullshit. Hmm. That's good to hear. Um, so when when the army was in or, in, you know, the United States was in Iraq, how did your family and your family that was still there, like how what was their experience? The ones that were in Iraq, do you did you talk? Were you able to talk to them or your parents? Was there a lot of communication during those times? We were able to speak to some of our uncles and things like that. Um, thankfully, we our families in Najaf, we were quite fortified. We had our own militias and everything. We we held our own. We didn't have to worry about anything like that. Uh, and a lot of the military strikes, they were focused on Saddam Ba'athist party locations in the beginning. So it's not like they were going to go from Baghdad and go four hours south and hit a place in Najaf that had nothing to do with Saddam. And for the most part, it was okay. It wasn't until... It wasn't until it got really heavy into like Fallujah and the surge and ISIS and all those people eventually that started coming and infrastructure started breaking down that things really started becoming problems. Before that, it wasn't too much of an issue. Iraq is big enough to the point where if there's a war literally going on in the north, you probably aren't going to be affected in the south. Yeah, so I, I was in Iraq and that was my experience. Um, it was really... I, I think eye-opening, leaving a city like Baghdad or Ramadi. So those were the two cities that I was in. Mm -hmm. And then we, because we would have on occasion missions to where we went um, to Western Iraq, which is very rural. There's not, there's not a lot out there. It's a lot of desert and, you know, but not very populated, and at least in the areas. And I'm not even sure. There were some places where I'm not sure where we went. Um, and it could be, I just we weren't told, or it could be that I just don't remember. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, that there weren't a lot of people out there. It was a very different kind of place. You know, it was almost, I mean, it was, it was kind of nice, actually. Just the open desert. It's beautiful, actually. Um, so I can see how, you know, being kind of just around the immediate cities would have a different experience than like a more rural area. 
Precisely. Yeah. It's a lot different in the South, too. Uh, obviously, since a new government has came in after the implementation of the surge in Obama and the new governments that have came in, the South has actually expanded quite a bit more than it used to be. Uh, since most of the leadership has been Shia, a lot of the money gets implemented into the Southern regions. Okay. So, so you know, the idea was that when the U.S. government uh, became involved in Iraq, we're going to take over, make, you know, force Saddam out, which happened, and then um, push democracy, right? Um, so, all right, what do you think? <laughs> what is democracy? Like, what the hell is democracy? Is it what America says is democracy? Because that's what... It's so stupid. No, America literally went to Iraq for nothing more than Bush's petty little daddy grievance and oil. That is nothing. It had nothing to do with democracy. The Iraqi people were living, for the most part, free. You know, they didn't have to worry about their health insurance because there wasn't health insurance. You could just go get treated. You don't have to worry about student loans because there wasn't student loans. You could just go to school and become a doctor if you wanted. It's democracy. What a joke. I remember that we would, um, at least I was, I was attached to people cause I was a medic. So I was attached to people that went in and, and had these meetings with sheiks and the different, you know, groups and trying to get them all work together. And, um, you know, the idea of a democratic government was very, there was a lot of resistance against that. So I don't know. We'll see. you know, time will tell. Well, the problem with democracy is you have too many stupid people. I mean, look at America, for example. You're letting everybody vote. Too many stupid people have a chance to vote. That's the issue with democracy. And then you got a country like Iraq that literally has went through 20 years of war. People, yeah, they can vote, which is not a problem. But it's like they're going from like a strong man to a system that America itself hasn't even perfected. Like, come on. Right. Well, America is well, not technically a democracy either. So, yeah. And I appreciate your your answer on that, Ahmed, in the sense of one of the questions I was going to ask you, and and because the picture that was painted from my perspective of that era in Iraq was that all Iraqis were under oppression by Saddam, and we were the great saviors coming over there. So I was going to ask the region that your family was from, what was their relationship with Saddam? But it sounds like it was a pretty what, there wasn't a lot of conflict there. Is that right? Or or was there in your region versus the different fractions in the country? There were a lot of factions in the beginning during the Gulf War and things like that. But before the Iraq War happened, it had pretty much settled down. Uh, the soldiers did what they did. The Ba'athist Party did what they did. Saddam did what he did. Najaf and Karbala did what they did. It wasn't much strife. I mean, you got to think of it like parts of like, Kashmir, but it wasn't as bad. It got to the point where a, America really fucked up when they got rid of a lot of those Ba'athist commanders and generals and things like that, because a lot of those commanders could have actually really uni, unified a lot of the people, not just their people, but a lot of the Southern Shias as well. So, hmm. I would agree that we... I mean, once the army and the Marines were in Iraq and, and it wasn't just Americans, right? Cause this was a NATO. Yes. This was a NATO thing. So it was, um, soldiers and from, 
you know, all the NATO countries. So we interacted with a lot of people that just weren't American, you know, but still there on a military mission. Um, so, sorry, I totally forgot where I was going with that. So anyways, I'm listening to like thunder and light and hail behind me. And <laughs> well, if you need to take cover, Rebecca, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. You know, I actually got something on my phone saying we're supposed to get a thunderstorm here too, but it hasn't happened yet. So I'm waiting. Yeah. I mean, any of these things, and I'm just thinking back in my mind of things I remember hearing about the Iraq war about Saddam. And that was, he was mustard gas comes to mind using that on his own people. Is that anything that you ever saw or heard from your relatives? Yes. No. Oh yeah. No. Saddam was a bastard. He deserved to die. Like I am not debating that one bit. No, he was a terrible fucking person. Uh, but the U.S. is not much better. So. Yeah, and that's actually, now I remember, that's where I was going with that, is that I didn't, from what I saw, and and talking to locals, because I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of locals, a lot of um, Iraqi army soldiers, um, that kind of thing, because it was a medic, so I was interacting with um, not just, you know, American soldiers, but the locals also, and that was that was pretty much the consensus, was that Saddam was terrible, um, they, and at that point, a lot of people had hope that America was going to be different, was going to offer something different. And there, so there were a lot of like Iraqi soldiers, for instance, who are willing to work with us and do things with us, um, because they really wanted things to be different than what Saddam had offered. Now we have, you know, the perspective of having gone through it all and the history and knowing that that is not how it turned out. Um, that shortly after, you know, America with United States withdrew from Iraq, that ISIS very quickly moved in. Um, who, I don't know what. So anyways, go ahead. I could see you want to say something. All right. So ISIS was basically created by Obama and Hillary Clinton, basically for the sole designation to destroy Syria and basically kind of crush a little bit more of Iraq for basically Israel, because that's exactly what they wanted. A Sunni and sectarian war is the most beneficial in that region for Israel because they benefit off all this war. And the U.S. makes a lot of money off these war contracts because missiles, bombs, yada, yada, yada. Everybody knows this. But the thing about Saddam when he was in there, when Saddam was in power, there was never a terrorist attack. There was never a suicide bombing. Everybody went to school. We had the highest literacy rate in the region for generations, actually. Uh, Everybody had clean water. Everybody had electricity. When the U.S. came, I mean, there's still places that are having blackouts because of how long, you know, 20 years war. It's going to take at least a good decade to repair everything. So, and it wasn't. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think people realize just how much of Iraq was completely decimated, like yeah. leveled, like major cities completely turned to rubble and just flattened. Exactly. Yeah. Like Bush said what he wanted to do. He wanted to bomb Iraq back to the Stone Age, and he kind of did. And a lot of the Iraqis will always remember that. But the thing is, though, is a lot of us are just, we have so much PTSD and we're so tired. We just mm -hmm. want to be left alone. 
Like right. we really just want to work and be left alone. And I think um, our new prime minister is doing quite well. We've been able to secure peace with China. We've been able to make deals with Syria, Egypt, the Iranians and the Saudis are talking together because of the deals the Baghdad and we've been making in Baghdad. I think we are, I, I'm hopeful for Iraq. I do see a positive future for it now. Yeah, well, you know, and a lot of people, and I, I, I had the opportunity to be able to see it, and it was amazing. You know, Iraq is at the core of where civilization started. You know, like yeah. that is the uh, Mesopotamia and the Tigris and Euphrates, and amazing. There's a lot of history there. Um, and, you know, people are resilient, um, but a lot has happened also. Yeah. You know, and I'm very proud to be Iraqi. I love my culture. I actually did one of those blood tests a long time ago, and it's like 0.003%, I guess, is my blood type or something like that. And it originates exactly from Iraq completely. So it's like, yes, pure blooded. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, and no matter what happens in the future, I believe that America will always have its place in the Middle East as like logistics and business and things like that. And I mean, how many Americans vacation in the Middle East and Dubai and Oman and things like that? It's going to keep happening. And I bet you within 20 years, Baghdad is going to be a little private destination as well. Everything is being repaired right now. But the problem that happened for like the past 15 years is there was a lot of corruption. And with all these oil contracts, the government didn't care where the money went. They just wanted to make sure they got the, what they wanted. So. Hmm. Corruption is, I, you know, I don't think any government is immune from that. <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, you guys call it lobbying. We call yeah. it bribery. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so that kind of, um, I wanted to talk, because I, you know, you're, we, I was on the call with you when you joined the party. And I immediately recognized, like, um, with you and your background and, you know, where you're from and that kind of stuff that I was like, you know, this is a guy that would have, um, you know, his, your story is going to be different. You're going to have a different perspective and that's important. And there's a lot of strength and there's a lot of power behind that. Like having, you know, just being able to like tell your story and, you know, like other people around you and for them to be able to listen to you and to where you are now, you know, and be able to like put all that together. So you joined the Libertarian Party, um, you know, and which is a little different of a political mindset. You know, we're a minority in the United States. Um, so kind of walk through that process of how, how you became to consider yourself, you know, part of the Libertarian Party and the politics behind that and the kind of the philosophy that you have in life that would have led you to where you are now. Now, one of the things I realized when I was younger about politics is that a lot of these parties, they play a game with each other where it's almost like they're acting. You know, they play a script. I'm going to pretend to say this. You're going to pretend to say this. And then we're just going to deal on this because we know what the deal is. And that's the Republicans and the Democrats. And I've noticed that no matter what the deal is, we get screwed. One of the things that I've realized, if you look at most presidents, except for President Trump, is no matter which president goes in, whether he was Obama or George W. Bush, there was always an expansion of war and taxes and basically proliferation from the American people and civil society as itself just to be able to 
you know, line the pockets of the elites. You know, if people want to make money, perfectly fine. I'm Middle Eastern. We love our money, obviously. <laughs> it's all a thing, you know, like do your thing. But the thing is, though, is you shouldn't be using your power to basically rob other people. You should not be using your authority to take from others. And that's why I joined the Libertarian Party. I feel like as a self-sufficient grown adult male, I should be able to be in control of my own life, my own decisions, and who I want you know, and I don't want to say who I want to speak for me because it sounds funny because in elections you have to have, it's a representative democracy. So you have to have somebody to speak for you. But the problem is if you have somebody to speak for you, they're speaking in their own way. So you're not going to get what you want ever. And I feel like with the Libertarian Party, there is actually a way you can get what you want because it's not backed by a corporation and it's not backed by, I guess, other families who have been in politics for generations, like the Bushes or the Kennedys and things like that. There's a difference between those parties because I feel like in the next decade or so, they're going to start making it so it's legal to even be in a third party, where eventually it's just going to be a uniparty. You're either in the party or you're not. It does seem like they're we're headed that way. So Minnesota just recently passed legislation to make it harder to be a third party, harder to get on the ballot, harder to become a major party. Uh, my, I, you know, you know, I see all this stuff happening and, you know, there's honestly, there's very little that you can do about it. Once the people in charge get it in their mind that they're going to pass something right at that point in time, by the time that you're able to like realize what's going on and react and try to do something about it, they're already like 10 steps ahead, right? Yeah. So they passed the legislation that makes it harder to become a major party in Minnesota. Um, I, I, But I think that they wouldn't have even felt it necessary to take those actions had they not been threatened by people like us who are building up you know, third party political parties like the, you know, the Libertarian Party and there's others in Minnesota. But had they not felt threatened by us to some degree, they would never have needed to take those steps. So I think that you're right that in the future, you know, we're on the right track um, and that it's going to take time and a lot of perseverance by us to be able to keep pushing it through. But With the Libertarian Party, individualism runs the individual the libertarian party mm -hmm. with the democrats and the rnc it's money so if we really want to change laws the only thing we really have to do is bribe the politicians who are voting for these laws because let's be honest every single democrat is corrupt so right if only the libertarian party had money <laughs> yeah that's literally it if we wanted to pass laws all we'd have to do is go to each single one of them and give them like a five or ten thousand dollar check and say vote for this and they will do it i guarantee it Maybe with inflation, we'll need a little more. I don't know. Yeah. It's maybe it's too soon to tell. Might get him well, a Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the interesting thing that I find with it is that they, they call themselves public servants, right? And they're not serving the public. They're serving themselves. That's the frustrating part. Yeah. Well, they're leading with corruption instead of compassion. You know, it's it's about them and not about us. Yeah. You know, I always think it's like, how long can they keep pumping this for? 
like do they keep expecting to pump the the american people for this for as long as they keep doing it i don't know i feel like there's going to be a breaking point and it seems like we're getting really close to it because there's nothing changing and things are just getting worse we're being taken more advantage of our laws are being decimated worse our money's being taken more and it seems like the government's getting more and more powerful and we're just getting we're basically turning into china but we're trying to blame the chinese for doing something that we're doing it's kind of funny it's like joe biden pointing at uh, his finger at vladimir putin and calling him a war criminal it's like are you kidding me right now <laughs> there's a lot of well, that in politics that? right yeah. yeah what is that you know when just a kid you just every you shouldn't point your finger at somebody because there's like four fingers pointing back at you, you know, exactly, so yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. How many yeah. people, though, do you do you feel? And, and that's one of the things I've spent a lot of time thinking about this is are, are people not paying attention or are people just so strapped with their time? They are paying attention, but the things that are higher priority in their day putting food on the table, paying your bills, those are taking precedence versus getting a momentum going that's going to bring about some positive change to our political system. You know, and that's the problem I've noticed with a lot of people is that they are just, a lot of them, they see the news and it says, it depresses me. I don't want to read about it. I don't want to hear about it because it's depressing. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, no shit. Your government is depressing. You have to do something about it. And a lot of people eventually just tune it out. It's like, as long as I'm able to take care of mine and my own, I don't care what the government does, even though they don't realize how bad the government is working against them as they're being basically asleep during this. They got their head in the sand while their rights are being taken away and they don't even realize it. What's a red flag law? I heard about Minnesota trying to pass a red flag law. What Mm -hmm. the hell is a red flag? Can anybody just say, hmm, I don't like this person because he commented or tweeted something I don't like. Is that a red flag? That, I don't get it. So I asked my husband about this because, you know, we have a crazy neighbor. And I was like, I, you know, I've been worrying about this since they passed the red flag laws. You know, is is this a situation where we might have to be worried about, you know, some somebody from law enforcement knocking on the door and being like, hey, we had a complaint. We're here to take all your guns because that that actually wouldn't go over so well at our house. Right. And um, and so my husband said that uh, you have to it has to be from like an intimate person. It can't just be like a random thing. But still, I'm like, I don't know, you know. So, Anybody can lie about that. They could just yeah. be like, oh, I'm this person's boyfriend or girlfriend. And, you know. Yeah, I know. I just, I don't trust people enough not to use laws like that Yeah. Um, for their own benefits and against people who just want to be left alone, you know. One of the common things I think we find with a lot of laws is they're, they're put in place with the intention of helping people, right? All these laws are sold to us as this is going to gun laws, we're going to prevent less less uh, mass shootings, and we're going to keep the guns out of the hands of criminals. So we're, we're protecting society. Yet, I constantly am struck by the Thomas Sowell quote that says, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And I don't think that these legislators take that the time to really think about what the trade-offs are of some of these laws. It's a quick, hey, let's get this passed because we think we're doing something good. It'll play well. Then the next campaign comes up. We can promote this as part of our what we did when we were we were in office last session and yet not take into consideration the, the consequences that come with a lot of laws. Right. The irony is the liberals trying to pass gun laws and wanting 
the police to be the only people who have them, you know? <laughs> yeah, like we didn't just go through defund the police. <laughs> right, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I know, and like where I live, I mean, we're out in the middle of, you know, the country, so we're very rural. Um, you know, by the time that if something were to happen and the, you know, the law enforcement show up and out here we have deputies because we're, you know, in the county. Um, but by the time it, it would already be over and, you know, there would be re a resolution, whether it's good or bad, you know, it, it would be hard to, you know, it's impossible to say, but something would have already happened by the time anybody got here in time to do anything about it. My grandfather and his father before him in Iraq and whatever Iraq was during the Ottoman Empire made their wealth off of building and creating and manufacturing firearms. It's literally in my blood, as Charlton Heston used to say, <laughs> from my cold, dead hands. They will never take a gun from me. <laughs> so what do you do now? What's your, like, what's, what do you do for work now? Or what have you done in the past? Like, what's your, you know, where have you gone with that? <laughs> Uh, I have a background in electrical engineering. Yeah. I've worked on automation projects, um, done a quite a few military contracting projects right now. And right now I work as a technician for a welding company. Exactly. I can't tell you the name just because. Yeah, yeah. It's always fine. <laughs> we don't need specifics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, my background is basically electrical engineering. So. Okay. Well, cool. So how did you end up in, you know, going to college for that? I actually went to Michigan to get away from the problems I was having in Minnesota. So I went to Michigan. I started in economics, actually, at first and got an undergrad degree in that. But then I got in a really messed up car accident and a power line fell on me. So I started having really messed up seizures and I couldn't remember numbers and things like that. So I needed to find a different type of work. So I found something that was more hands-on and I started working at Chrysler and it was a lot of hard work, but eventually I got a job at a different company where I was more like just straight up hands. And one of the good things about working in straight up hands is you learn electrical work and learn how to work with your hands and put boards together as well as like microprocessors, things like that. And I just, one thing led to another. The owner of the company was like, hey, you want to learn how to do PLCs? I said, sure, why not? And yeah, a couple That's years later. Yeah. A couple years later, I'm working on Fanuc robots and uh, automatic welders. So. Wow. So where, where are you now? Like, I know you're in Minnesota and you're active within the party. Yes. Um, the Libertarian Party. I don't want to, I, whenever I say like the party, I always think like in my background going, no, that sounds very 1984, you know, the party. Like the um, Ohio State. So, um, and you are a family man. You've got some kids. Yes. You've got a couple of daughters. I and do. yeah, you spend, I know like just from knowing you that you have, are very devoted and spend a lot of time with them. Um, yeah. Which is something that I, you know, I like, I appreciate as a mom, you know, seeing other people show <laughs> equal devotion to their families also. So, um, but what is, what do you think like for your future? Like, what are you kind of looking at doing and where are you anticipating going from here or, and how does that play into the Libertarian Party? You know, recently I actually was elected as the vice chair of CD5 
And to be honest, I have no idea still what I'm doing. So I actually, well, it's a learning curve. That's definitely for sure. Because you go from doing logistical to analytical thinking at work to actually learning how to, well, you got to learn how to talk to people in the party. Yeah. You have to learn how to be nice and friendly and things like that and be able to conversate. So I'm trying to get used to doing that. It's a new process to me. So, and I think in the future, as a party member, we have a lot of work to do. We definitely need to do a lot when it comes to fundraising, being able to push a candidate to being able to hell, let's get our website going and being able to actually market and things like that too, like a lot of the other party members do. And as my own future, well, I just hope America can finally get out of its rut. Yeah. Actually, I think that's probably why a lot of us are here just to kind of help along with that process, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to do it by itself. <laughs> no, right. Definitely not. We have to, we actually have to do the handwork and legwork on this one. The, the, yep. the DNC and the RNC are not going to help us in any way, shape or form. In fact, they're actually going to put roadblocks in front of us. So. Yeah. Well, they like their seat of power and they don't want anybody to threaten that. Um, I was thinking earlier, you said something about, uh, I remember, but anyways, it, talking about like the future um, generations and people voting and people, pe you know, people struggling with complacency or busyness or, you know, whatever the excuse is as to why things have gotten to the where they are now. I actually have a lot of hope for the younger generations that just essentially lost their childhood to the COVID years, right? So um, I think that it's, it's probably too soon to say but in some ways, um, you know, and somebody plays their cards a little too early because we always have this revolving door of generations, you know. So what happens in your childhood affects the way that you view life. Um, and so when we have a whole bunch of kids having just gone through elementary school or high school, I know my oldest, um, it started when she was a sophomore in high school and wasn't, you know, totally and she graduated high school. She was like, my high school years were wrecked, right? Those those kids are growing up in an environment where they realize that the strong arm of the government is creating is creating conflict and, you know, this like oppressive nature of just living that isn't necessary. And that's going to affect how they vote later on in the future. So I'm hoping that that will have had some sort of positive effect as we go, as they grow up and as they kind of become more of who they are, you know, they will remember that these years and what could happen with too much when you give a group of people too much control. So. And I agree with you, Rebecca. I think part of, part of that though, is that when kids go to a public school setting, I think they're getting one message for a good portion of the day. And that's why I think it's important for parents to play an active role in the child's life and, and bring in a kind of a, a, not just what you're hearing at school, but here's what's going on outside of school in, in the real world and, and some different opinion on that. Cause otherwise they end up just thinking that what everything that the school is doing is hundred percent right. And, and not having some different thoughts about that. Yeah. What, what have you seen, Ahmed, with you, with your children, I guess, in the COVID? How, how did they respond to that? You know, my oldest was very depressed about it. She is 12 now. She hated not being able to go to school or see her friends. And I think it affected them quite a bit. I think I can still see kind of some rigid residual 
angry, pissy teenager effects, I guess, to say <laughs> that they basically developed from COVID. And I like to think that these kids are resilient and are able to shake things off. But, you know, they were able, a lot of them basically got sucked into social media and the information age. And in good and bad ways, you got a lot of them that had developed issues because of the social media thing and due to COVID and being locked in and realizing that these things are happening because they, and they had no choice over it. So you got different parts of the government that are telling them that they can't do this. And you got social media telling them that they should do this. So it gets to the point where it's confusing these kids and then. A lot of them, hopefully, I'd like to think are smart enough to realize that no matter what, your choices aren't your own. Someone will always continuously make them for you. And I remember being a teenager. They're going to rebel. So hopefully once they start rebelling, they start doing it in a positive manner and rebel against the government like we all did, except actually make some movement this time. And these kids are different than we are due to the fact that they're growing up with the information age. They have cell phones attached to them. They're able to do Google and research everything that they want without having to guess if this teacher is telling them the truth or not. If this textbook is telling them something that actually happened when it actually didn't. So it's going to be a lot harder to brainwash these kids until, well, they control the internet. Great point. Great point about the oh yeah them having access to stuff to check out their own research, do their own research. Yes. That is the one thing that a lot of people never had in previous years. And I guarantee you ever since the creation of the internet, there's a new timeline split basically, because think of it like this, the Arab spring in Egypt wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the capabilities of Facebook. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's like wildfire. Yes. <laughs> Rebecca, you mentioned your your teenage daughter, your oldest. She was a sophomore at the time. How did the, the rest of your children handle the COVID lockdown? And... <laughs> well, we're homeschoolers, so it's just another you know day of life, really, basically. And we're rural Minnesota, so I mean, it's already we were affected a lot less than people in the cities. Um, you know, there was certain places that we could go to in town that even while there was a statewide mask mandate, that you were not going to get harassed at these places for just walking in not wearing a mask because everybody around you was also not wearing a mask. Um, so, you know, and with it, it, with the exception of my oldest, who was at the public school for high school um, and now we're never sending anybody else to the public school for high school after that whole experience. So um, they're all have always been homeschooled and it didn't, it didn't affect them as much as, as it could have, but you know, that's a lot of that is just our situation in general. So. Yeah. I literally told my ex-wife jokingly, of course, I was said, I'm going to kidnap my daughter right before she turns. I got two daughters, obviously, but I'm going to kidnap the oldest one right before she goes to high school and send her to Iraq. At least she won't have to deal with American public schools. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Every bad habit I ever picked up, I got it at an American public school. So <laughs> that's, that's true for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ahmed, what was uh, talking to some of your family back in Iraq? I'm just curious when COVID was happening, what was what were things like in Iraq? You know, I didn't really know too often. We kind of didn't really talk about COVID too much as it was happening in Iraq. I think they kind of just dealt with it. It's like, all right, mask up. And if you wanted to, you wanted to. But I guess it wasn't overblown like it was here. Yeah. Yeah. 
because the politicians there weren't using it to benefit themselves. I guess that makes a difference. Yeah. Does Iraq have a, a pharmaceutical company that was trying to? <laughs> <laughs> no, thankfully we don't. So. Yeah. Um, so I, we are almost at our time limit. Yes. Um, I wanted to tell you, thank you very much for joining us. I, thank you for I yeah, talking to you and being able to, you know, have a conversation is always a good experience. So thank you. Um, yeah. This has been yeah. very enlightening for, for me as well, Amit. So I really do appreciate you joining us tonight. And it's been good to talking to talk with you. Well, I appreciate your time, man. It's nice to finally put a face to the name, Troy. So, <laughs> And likewise. <laughs> um, and just for everybody else that's watching, our uh, website for Libertarian Party of Minnesota is lpmn.org. Um, and you, if you are interested in, in taking more of an active role in the party, you can find information on that, contacts, you know, reach out on uh, the YouTube or whatever and get in touch with somebody and we'll let you know there's a lot of work to do and a lot of opportunity to volunteer. So all we need is willing participants. But um, Join us. We're a friendly group that's going to be making a big difference. Yeah. 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 It's going to be good. Future's bright, I think. I think so, right. too. It was lovely. You guys have a great night. <laughs> yeah, you too. Good night. Only group that's going to be making a big difference. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be good. Future's bright, I think. I think so right. too. It was lovely. You guys have a great night. <laughs> yeah, you too. Good night. <laughs>